I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, a social justice facilitator, author of Pleasure Activism and Emergent Strategy, and a doula living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. Our guest today is Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha, who is an accomplished and brilliant and prolific writer who has put out many books and most recently a collection of poems called Body Map and an incredible book called Care Work, which is about how we need to orient, reorient our movements towards a disability justice framework. Um, and it's a guide for all of us. So Autumn got to catch up with Leah, and this interview, I just want to give you the, the gift of a heads up. Leah talks very quickly, and none of it is wasted space. So prepare yourself. You might want to have a notebook for some of the very real, incredible examples she gives that point a direction towards what a community of real care could look like. Enjoy. I moved to Seattle three years ago. I got my first not working for myself job in a decade. And it was at this like, yeah, no, and it was at this, it was at one of the, you know, two or three um, disability cultural centers in the United States at universities where it's not a like, we're going to give you access accommodations or maybe not centers, but it's actually a, you know, cultural center, like a queer center would be for queer students. It's a place for disabled. Wow. Work. Yeah. The D center is great. The university of Washington sucks. And <laughs> I just was also like, I, you know, I lived in majority people of color cities my whole life. And all of my friends before moving to Washington were like, you don't know how white it is here. And I was like, but when I come, when I visit, I hang out with y'all and the South side of Seattle is very black. <laughs> They're like, we're trying to warn you. <laughs> They were, and like my one of my friends was like, "Get ready to be surrounded by white people wherever you go." And I was like, "Oh, you know." And then so hyper gentrification hit, like it did most coastal cities. So I moved with my partner, who's like born and raised Queens in the Bronx, and I was like, "No, there's there's Latinx people here." And then we get to Beacon Hill, and they're like, "Where the fuck are they? You lied to me." And I was like, "I'm sorry, it's not Jackson. I'm really sorry." And then I'm at UW, and you know my boss's secretary day one is like, "Well, your name's too long to fit on the the bill. What part do you want us to chop off?" And I was like, no. "Wow, this is you know some real specific Swedish ass liberal racism wearing REI." So I was the job for a year, and then I got pneumonia for three months, and I was like, "This job is actually making me more disabled." So I quit, mm-hmm. which was really hard because I had that good state benefits. But like like Alexis Pauling Gums and a lot of other people have talked about, you know, good benefits. Like you know, academia for like women of color is like they'll give you the good benefits, and it's really useful when you get cancer after fifteen years of dealing right. with it. So I quit. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm just designed to be self-employed. Um, I'm pretty cool. good at this. I never know what the fuck money I'm going to make, but this is cool. And I just was like, you know, it had been um, 
not that long since Dirty River had come out. It'd been like less than a year, but I was like, oh, I'll just put together a book of essays. You know, I have a lot of essays. I'll just slam them together. It'll be out in six months. Uh-huh. And like happens a lot of the time when you write a book, it's like, you think you know what you're doing. The book knows better than you. And it's like, mm. <laughs> that, that's really cool. That little image you have. So as I started working, you know, at first I was like, it's going to be like, like I was thinking about Dorothy Allison's book, Skin, which is, you know, it's a compilation of her essays, but it's like queer, Southern white, poor, survivor, femme, like all kinds of stuff. And I was like, yeah, it'll be like all on all kinds of topics. And then I, when I started putting the essays together, I was like, oh, these are all connected to my work in disability justice in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, and then you know, the title care work came to me because I was like, I think that the work of disability justice is both around profound, like a profoundly political work of care and it's work, you know, I mean, the work we do as sick and disabled and neurodivergent people is such invisibilized labor, but we are working so hard all the time to create culture, to create access, to survive, to bring each other soup, to, you know, create movements and cultures. Um, So I wanted to have that in the title. And, um, yeah, so, and I think that, you know, when you first asked, when I got the email list of questions and you were like, how is your process with writing poetry different than writing this book or similar? I was like, oh God, I always flood this question because I'm always like, well, you know, with poetry, the lines end quicker, I guess. <laughs> but, but I'm always just like, I don't know, I just write this shit and then people like it, I guess, sometimes. Um, but I thought about it a little bit more and I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that I started as a poet and... Um, I started, you know, in my early 20s, in the 90s, I came up in spoken word poetry, and I came up when, and my experience of it was very much that it was this politicized queer people of color side of speaking truth, and yes. uh, just really, it didn't have to be boring, it didn't have to be dead, it could cut through all the bullshit, and it could be life-saving, like, it was just this real you know, I mean, I think this, you know, can sound trite now, or like, oh yeah, we've all heard, like, tell your stories, it changed the world, but, you know, for me in 1996, just hearing, you know, writers like Sapphire and other women of color writers talking about survivorhood, talking about our lived experiences, you know, in three minutes or less on stage with a lot of cussing, I was like, oh man, this is, this is saving my life. And when I started writing, that's what I wanted to do too. And a lot of my poetry really centered around, especially the beginning around survivorhood stuff mixed race stuff, um, you know, being in an abusive relationship within political POC community. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of how I think of writing as community service, you know, that like as a cultural worker, you can be somebody who tells stories to change the world and you can be somebody who says your shit and other people hear it and go, oh, wow, I'm not alone for real. And I think that with these pieces, like, I mean, my process of writing them you know, I have this in the introduction. I'm like, like most of these pieces started when I moved to Oakland in 2007. I'd been living outside of the States for 10 years in Canada. And I had been, you know, when I left the States in 1987 is when I got chronically ill, when I first got disabled. So I'd been sick and disabled for 10 years. Um, but it wasn't until I came to Oakland that I was able to connect with disabled people of color and disabled queer people of color. Um, because the disability justice movement in large part started in the Bay Area because people like Patty Byrne, Mia Mingus, Stacey Milburn, Leroy Moore were all Bay Area based or keen to be Bay Area based and mm-hmm. Simple Ballad, which is this amazing queer and trans people of color, you know, disabled people of color doing performance art about sex and racism and desirability, that was there. And I might be rambling a little bit, but like, I guess, so I want to say that like culture makes culture and it wasn't until like yeah. a lot of disabled people of color 
when I looked at disability movement and it was just a bunch of white guys, I was like, that does not speak to my lived experience as somebody whose disabilities are coming from environmental racism, you know, creating right. the fact that everyone in my hometown has fibromyalgia and cancer, you know, or connected to oh. all of the things, right? And so that was one thing. And so I started writing these pieces from bed. I was, you know, in grad school working four jobs and I was still sick. And, you know, so a lot of the pieces I was just writing on Facebook. I was writing to sick and disabled community spaces, I, you know, on my ass on the heating pad. And, um, and I think that being around disability justice cultural movement allowed me to be like, oh, that's a legit way to be a writer. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, Sins Invalid was really, like a lot of people, my entry point to disability justice. And, you know, the thing that trips a lot of people out is they're like, but wait, it's a performance art collective? Like, how is that? They're not like doing organizing work? <laughs> right. Like, is that real? And especially in the Bay, which, like, God bless the Bay, but, you know, there is this culture in the Bay. And it definitely was when I lived there of like, we are membership-based, movement-driven organizations where everyone's like door knocking and working 98 hours a week for the cause. And... And something that I quote in the book and that I, is a story I share a lot is that when I, one time I was talking to Patty and I was like, so why performance art? Like, why did you decide to create mm. performance as a way of creating disability justice culture and really creating, you know, being able to like build? And she was like, you know, she kind of dryly laughed and Patty comes from like a really, you know, is a revolutionary and, you know, came up in like revolutionary movement spaces as a, you know, queer, Haitian Japanese disabled woman in the Bay. And she was like, and she has this quote line that I always go back to where she's like, you know, I could do a million workshops trying to convince white disabled people not to be ableist and trying to convince able-bodied people of color that we exist and we matter. And she's like, or I could do a three-minute piece of performance art that just gets in people's dreams and nightmares and subconscious and fucks with them. <laughs> and she's like, I decided to do that road. And because she's like, it's beautiful and it's art and it's also more like time efficient because like, you know, a lot of people be like, I'm not going to go to the workshop, but oh, you're going to do some performance about, about sex and like in watching it, I'm like also being forced to like confront my fear of disability in my life or the histories of disability in my family or how like, you know, disabled black and brown stories are like Harriet Tubman, eugenics, like, you know, yeah. um, residential schools, like all of these different things. And she was like, yeah, that one. And that yes. was my jumping point with like I went to see a sin show and I just was like, you know, the opening fucking act was like two people, like one Maori wheelchair user and one white gender queer, you know, like non-wheelchair using disabled person, like doing this race play, like fighting for the top scene. And then um Rodney Bell, who's the Maori wheelchair dancer, being slowly suspended 40 feet in his chair above the stage as Patty's voice is like, Are you safe? Is this safe? Are you afraid of us, the disabled, the chronically ill? Is that why you want to lock us up? And then there's a cross suspended on him. And then she's talking about like, you know, Christianity, colonization. And I was like, and then she was like talking about desire. She, she has this line where she's like, living requires risk as does the hottest of desires. We live in continual risk and tonight we're coming home. Wow. And I just was like, I cried, I came. I was like, this is everything. <laughs> All the disabled stories I've never been able to talk about. I've never had community around. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, honestly, going back, I'm like, at, for me, that started my place around like, how can I be a cultural worker? and build disability justice community that way and maybe create some tools and do it not through like because i think a lot of times when people like maybe run into disability stuff they're like oh it's like a list of check boxes you know that, yes, like, like yes. Check i mean that's so much of how it's framed right, right? yeah like and i think 
Right, and I think what disability justice does instead, because we're a black and brown movement, is like it's actually about like the, our lived experiences and stories and fears and dreams, mm. and it's not something that you can just buy off the shelf. You know, I mean, like, you know, there's like sometimes checklists are really helpful. Like, I mean, there's certain access needs. Like, yeah, you know, if you want to have wheelchair users in your space, you got to have the doors 36 inches wide. Like, that's not negotiable. Right. But right. also in terms of like jumping everybody into this movement and getting people to be like, oh shit disabilities right here in my life. It's about connecting. I think for people of color, it's about getting in touch with a lot of our stories that are really buried and really present. And where we're like, oh fuck, like that's all the stuff that we had to shut up about. Like that's, you know, that's all these secret stories. I mean, every time I do a workshop and I'm like, okay, that's primarily black and brown around disability justice. I'm like, you know, you might be coming thinking this is like some like foreign population you're learning about, but A, there's disabled people in the room. Yep. B, even you might realize at the end of the three hours that you are disabled. See, you're going to be like, oh, sh I mean, there's always someone who's like, oh yeah, that was my uncle, or yeah, yeah. I'm from a farm working community, and everybody is chronically ill from pesticide exposure, but we don't call that disability. Yeah, that brings up a question for me around just shifting gears slightly from thinking about, you know, because you're, I'm hearing you talk a lot about the, about the the power of the cultural work to be able to help people really arrive inside the analysis without having to, um, without having to go through the checklist process first. And it makes me wonder, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the way that you have done this work inside of movement spaces that's looked more explicitly like organizing work, because, you know, my, my first encounters with you were at the allied media conference watching you build co-build with other folks the creating collective access spaces um watching you really you and and other folks really fighting to center a disability justice and an accessibility lens at a national social movement conference um where and you know what we've witnessed over the years is the the is the instability in in our national movement spaces to be able to keep uh, that's that lens centered. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, we, and we, we were emailing back and forth about this a little bit, the, the ways that our social justice movements, in spite of all of the work that folks have done to really center this lens, the way our social movements continue to leave out disabled communities, um, in a variety of ways or continue to, struggle to apply a disability justice lens in a variety of ways. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about like the lessons you learned from inside that work, um, that you continue to learn and, um, what like wisdom you have to share about how our movements can actually be doing a better job of integrating those lessons that individuals maybe are able to like really embody in that cultural, cultural, art art based experience this is a great question i want to kind of start out with like a challenge for um or a question i want to throw out to people who might be listening who don't identify as disabled and i really want to just ask like able people who are listening what do you know about disabled movement like what are you doing to center dis disability disability justice and access in your work like what are you like what when you hear disability like what do you think about when you hear disability movement or disability justice what do you think about are you actively seeking out disabled folks who are doing organizing and activism and leadership and listening to what we have to say and integrating it how are you being in a cohort 
Because I would say that like one of the biggest lessons, unfortunately, that I've learned that, you know, I don't know a single, you know, disabled person that doesn't, is that for the most part, it is disabled people who give a shit about this work and able people just turn their brains off. Like they might care about it for a minute. And then as soon as we're not there being like, hey, what's going on? It's just like, Rrr. and I think that yep. comes from a number of places. I think that there are so many, I mean, it's like, hard, like there are so many levels to it. I think that it still is a huge cognitive leap for a lot of people to be like, oh, disability is a political and cultural identity or set of communities. It's not just some individual health tragedy. Like I, yes. one editor I was working with, um, you know, in care work who was like, at one point was just like, like I was just like, as a member of disability communities, this is something that I value. And she was like, do you want to say more about your disability? And it was like, and this is so classic, because I was like, oh, because I'm like, right, the only lens that she has to think about somebody writing about disability is like, I'm going to tell my personal tragic story, right? Got it's it. not mm -hmm. about like, I'm part of a series of communities that have histories, that organize, that struggle, that disagree with each other, right? And like, I'm really wary of like, you know, comparisons to other oppressions, but I was just like, think about like, yeah, I mean, like, think about, like, you know, if a white person, if you're talking about, like, you know, communities of color or racism, if a white person was like, do you want to tell more about your struggle? We would be like, Fuck you. like, I'm talking yeah. about, like, organizing. <laughs> and, you know, but there's a way in which disability is erased and depoliticized. So people have, a, like, people still are like, oh, y'all do stuff. Like, y'all. And I think that also, yeah. um, you know, Sonali Rajawar, who um, is somebody who works as the fat sexologist, just posted this amazing thing where she was like, your fear, it's on Instagram, and it was something like, your fear of becoming disabled is rooted in ableism. And then there was a lot of conversation on the thread where people were like, one person was like, wait, I'm sorry, like, I follow you, but what you're saying that if I, you know, might have some feelings about losing a leg or getting blind, that I'm being ableist, like, I don't get that. And oh. then I kind of jumped in because Sonali quoted me, and I was like, you know, it's not like as disabled people, like, of course, when you have a bodily change, like there's grief, there's loss, there's complicated feelings. But the thing that we know as disabled people is like the actual lived experience of being disabled is not always the worst thing in the world. And there's a societal thing that's including in social justice communities, people are still like, that's a fate worse than death. And they do it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. like, I would rather die than be you living as you must suck. You know, and then for us, you know, for people who are in disabled communities, a lot of times we're like, you know, the oppression sucks. And yeah, like pain and impairment and dealing with the medical industrial complex, that sucks. Having a weird body or mind doesn't in and of itself suck. Um, right, you know, right. Right. I mean, there's a social model that comes out of England, of British disability community, where they're like, you know, a lot of people look at someone who's a wheelchair user and go, oh, yeah, your life's so hard because of the chair. And then they're like, well, actually, the social model would say everything can be different. So if every single piece of public, you know, transportation didn't have steps, it wouldn't suck. Like, it's not your body that's the problem. So it's that's right. Right. So I guess, so that's I'm like, so jumping back to your question, I think that what I've learned is that we need more accomplices. Um, I really want to push abled people in social justice movement. I mean, I've got a piece in the book where I'm like, time's up. Like, you really can't stop. You, you have to stop forgetting about us. You have to stop yeah. forgetting yeah. about ableism and disability. You have to see how it's central to your life, to your community, and to every single movement that we're in succeeding. 
Um, something that I know um, people in the Harriet Tubman Collective, which is the Black, Disabled, and Deaf Collective, have talked about a lot, is they're like, so the statistics are 40 to 50% of Black and brown people who are killed by the police are also disabled. And mostly okay. their deaths happen at the intersection of racism and ableism. So if we're fighting to end police murder of Black, Indigenous yeah. people, we actually can't just, you know, movements can't keep conveniently forgetting that like, oh, that guy was deaf too, or autistic, or that native woman was shot because she was quote unquote mentally ill and somebody called 911 on a wellness check and then she was shot by the cops. Like we need to be looking at those intersections or else it's not gonna work. Like I'm a tourist, yes. I'm pragmatic. I'm like, we really need to win this shit. Um, I think that, yeah, so I think that's part of it. I think, you know, jumping back to the Allied Media Conference and talking a little bit more, um, just to give a little background for people who might not know what Creating Collective Access was. Creating Collective Access happened when it was 2010. It was like the, you know, the super year where both the AMC was happening in Detroit and the United States Social Forum was happening like the week after. Yeah. So myself and Mia Mingus and Stacey Milburn were on this conference call like you do, like three weeks before the AMC. And we're all disabled, <laughs> like you do. Color, women of color. And we we're all like doing the check-in, you know? And we're like, how are you doing? And we're all like, oh my God, like I'm gonna die. And we were all having, you know, what a lot of people have, a lot of disabled and sick people have pre going to a conference where you're just like, I'm going to go to this thing. There's going to be no access or there, there's going to be stuff that says there's access, but then it's not there. I'm going to be alone in my room while everyone's at the party trying to get food delivered. It's going to suck. And then we were like, okay, what if we just try and throw something together at the last minute, trying to reach out to other sick and disabled folks who are coming to the conference to be like, let's get together and support each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what creating collective access was. And it was like a disabled woman of color led and centered space. That was really yeah. beautiful. And that was a lot of people's first experience of POC-led disability community where we were helping each other out and where we were like, oh, fuck, we're really taught that like we can't do stuff, that we always have to be like asking for help in this charity model. But actually, that's bullshit. We know that we do for each other all the time. And, you know, I mean, the story I tell is often like, you know, one person who was neurodivergent, like, you know, the food was like, you know, a mile away and people were like, that's too far. So someone who was ambulant, who could walk, but who was neurodivergent was like, let me take this person who's a wheelchair user, spare manual wheelchair. I'm going to walk it to the shawarma restaurant, get sandwiches for everybody, put it in the wheelchair and walk it back and we'll all eat. And so there's all this kind of like yes. intelligence that, so Basically, it just was, it was this thing, and it was like totally imperfect and beautiful, and it blew up, and then we were doing workshops, and like, so there was like three years at the AMC, where, you know, people were like, oh my god, the Allied Media Conference is like so disability positive, this is incredible, and then by like year two or three, um, and I write about this in the book, like we, it had gotten so popular that I remember being outside of Cass Cafe with like a hundred sick and disabled folks on the lawn, trying to get a table and we were all so tired and so spooned out and we were Whoa. like yeah and then and then by year four i mean around that time like we i know people who didn't involve in cca to be honest had gone to the amc and been like you know and some people at amc have been very supportive like i remember jenny lee mail ordering in unscented soap for the whole conference because there was yeah. a market at in detroit at that point that had it and i was like that's an amazing you know act of accomplishment but then we were like you know, we need to get some money or something. Like we need to like, 
like we are, this is an example of disabled people doing it for each other and, and doing it brilliantly, but like we're all doing it on like a $1,200 Indiegogo for a conference of now thousands of people. Right. Just, you know, we need more institutional support and that didn't happen for whatever reason. And now I have to say like when I go to the AMC, like when I went last year, I was like, fuck, this is pretty inaccessible. And I know a lot of disabled people who don't go anymore. And I think that that's one thing that is a growing pain thing that I, I am hoping that, you know, we can continue to address in AMC. Yeah. Because yeah. like, for example, when I go to opening ceremony and the bathrooms are in the basement and there's no elevator, I'm like, oh, damn, this is not, this is not good. Yeah. Yeah. And major growing pains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's growing pains. And it is like, I mean, I think that one thing is that, um, that I know a lot of people have talked about with AMC is that when it was smaller that in and of itself made it more accessible because it was slower. You could talk to people like the halls weren't jammed with folks, like the rooms didn't fill up immediately. And now that it's like a quadrillion trillion people, like that's harder, like all that shit's harder. Right. And so I think that some of the work is figuring out like with the limited resources we have, like how do we continue to centralize access? Well, and it sounds like, I mean, it seems like, you know, extrapolating from the allied media conference, this lesson of like, um, how do we scale? Because if we can learn to do something at um, a micro scale, then in theory, we should be able to scale that same skill. I mean, I know that there are some things that folks genuinely, you know, in fact, it, it was so interesting. We were just um, a few months ago, we had a conversation with Miriam Kaba about um, transformative justice. And one of the things that she was talking about was that like the type of, um, survivor-led accountability work that she does is something that doesn't scale and that like and she was really making the the argument that like you know because we live inside of capitalism we tend to believe or think that everything should scale and that there are some things that don't and so I've been I've been really sitting with that question um and I wonder about that in relationship to this in relationship to access right that like is access something that can scale or is it another one of those places that that we can point to in in American society and global capitalism and say, because something like access, perhaps something like access, universal access isn't scalable inside of global capitalism. And that's another one of the reasons why global capitalism is so unsustainable, because it's something that fundamentally can't be inclusive of everyone's actual needs. Right. But then it, within movement, but, so here's the thing. And like, I was like, oh yeah, right. Cause I was like, well, yeah, and that was good. And then it was bad. But then here's the thing. Like, so I hear what you're saying. And I also want to push back on it because like, yeah, I mean, in one, in some ways I'm like, well, the ADA is scale, you know, the section 504 riots yeah, is, is scale. Like, I actually think there are ways in which in the civil rights and like legislative eras, like disability, like, I'm like, I think that, you know, if we woke up tomorrow and there was the revolution, I think we absolutely could and would need to be able to have a revolution where it's like, yeah, no, let's look at like what deep and broad access looks like and let's, you know, have it happen from the beginning. I mean, I think that's the thing when I gave that example of like, your body's not the problem, the bus is the problem, you know, your body's not the problem, ableism is the problem. Yeah. I was going to say like, that's a moment where like disability meets visionary, you know, organizing and fiction where like everything can be different. You know, everything does not have to be this way. And then if we're just talking about national activist conferences, like I think about something like the Disability and Intersectionality Summit that um, Sandy Yee and Lydia Brown and a bunch of disabled POC, you know, held, you know, the, in Boston and the Bay Area. And 
there was full access there, like full of every kinds of access. Like there was ASL, there was wheelchair access, there was fragrance access, there were quiet rooms, there was like, you know, every kind of food accommodation that you could do. There was childcare. Mm. And it's this thing where I look and, and, and I mean, it's not, I think the question that is maybe more helpful to ask is like, what does it take to be able to accomplish that? And like, you know, the folks who did that conference, they don't have a million dollars from the Ford Foundation. And I think that one place where I mm. can into what Miriam's saying is that I think that one of the strengths of disability justice is that, and disability organizing in general, is that like disabled people are organizing all the time, everywhere yeah. we go. Yeah. And often, you know, when people are like, well, how do I join the DJ movement? I'm like, it's not a national organization. It's every place there's a collective, every place that something's happening, it's three people got together at a kitchen table and we're like, what can we do within our community? You know, and that's yeah. what makes it actually replicatable in a crip way. But like, it doesn't have to be a big ass national organization with bylaws. It can be people who use principles um, like the 10 principles of disability justice that Sims and Dowd came up with, which I encourage people to check Which out. are in care work. Yes, they're right. <laughs> just like, it's not just me, it's everybody. Um, yeah. Which you can also find online by Googling. It's like anybody who's doing work that is about like, you know, censoring people who are marginalized. And, you know, I'll, I won't read all the things, but like, I'm like, that's what makes it possible. And I think about, you know, in Toronto, um, people I know in Cutie Park community who don't necessarily identify as disabled, but are like, yeah, so I just built a fucking ramp to my art space. And I just did that. And I did it because I want everyone to be able to be there. And I know that more access is more access for everybody, including parents, including older people. Ramps are really great for strollers, you know, like. Right. Um, right. Like Ramps are great for everybody. <laughs> I guess like for me, I'm just like, I think we could actually scale up you know, access and disability pretty easily if everyone just made a commitment to being like, okay, when we first start doing stuff, let's think about how we're going to build access into it from the beginning so it's instead not of as an afterthought. Because, you know, I have a dear friend who I love, but I remember right after the Dis Summit, and like, I'm not mad at her about this, but she was about to go to this conference. It was in two days. And she was like, fuck, like, I just realized, um, I don't know if there's any access. And like, I heard you were at this conference that was really accessible. So how do we build it in? And I was like, well, to be honest, to, no, 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 but I mean, people, this is shit that people do all the time. I'm like, I was, it was an honest question, but I was just like, honestly, like two days before with no money or limited money, there's going to be limits to what you can do. And like, yeah. for the most part, you know, a lot of sick and disabled and neurodivergent people, if they, you know, if we look at an event and we go, oh yeah, I'm not seeing anything about access or disability, I might not prioritize going because I know it's going to kind of suck and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be able to show up as my full self. Yeah. And it's, there's something to, uh, sorry to interject, but I think there's something to here around, like, I think so often the way that abled folks orient to access, um, is still through the lens of like heroics and like this idea of like, I'm going to like swoop in and like figure out a way to make this work for you. And like, even if we have to carry you up the stairs, we're going to get you in the building. And, you know, especially as a as a facilitator, I'm very suspicious of any conversation process or event that produces something that looks like catharsis for people who have dominant identities. And so I think about that, about like the way that abled folks, um, that there's a way of like, even that, even some of those behaviors that we see endemic to those kinds of spaces of like leaving things to the last minute and then only solving the problem when it has reached an emergency level, that gives the person with the dominant identity the experience of feeling like they solved the problem. But it 
it doesn't give agency to the folks um, who are actually needing the service or needing the access, right? Well, and it, it also completely, like, it's coming from a place of thinking that, like, you know, like, I'm going to, like, that able person is going to be misfixed and that disabilities need to fix. And it's completely, you know, it's buried in all this inspiration porn and all this charity of, like, I'm going to help the handicapped. Oh, my God, look at me. I'm a great person. And it's also rooted in this complete ignorance. And, and I see that a lot when people are, like, surprised that disabled people are not just waiting around for some able-bodied person to come in and save the day. Like, we're actually, like, we live our lives and we're doing this shit all the time. Yes. And, like, we don't need your help, but we do need your accomplishment. And we need you to actually listen to and, like, read. Like, there's a million articles online, you know, that are saying very clearly, you know, as disabled Black and Brown and queer folks, what we need, you know, what our political issues are, you know, what are the access hacks, what are the cultural gifts. And, you know, something I think I started to say before, and I'm not sure if I got it out, was that, um, you know, th there's such a deficiency model that, you know, able people, and I think a lot of people, including, you know, disabled folks who maybe are like, ah, I'm isolated, I haven't run into this, I've really internalized that disability just has to mean less than, you know, and I think that a lot of people, it kind of reminds me how sometimes people, this might seem like a stretch, but work with me, where you know how sometimes people look at the word bisexual and they think, oh, those people are reinforcing the gender binary because bi means two sexes. And then bisexual people are like, no, it just means like me and everybody else of whatever genders I might want to be bisexual with. <laughs> you know, to me, like a lot of people are like, oh, I hate the word disabled because it means bad, it means broken. And a lot of people in the disabled community are like, no, it's dis like dissident. You know, it's like, yeah. I have one of, a, uh, I have one of, a million kinds of bodies and minds that exist that are all equally valid and that actually we have gifts like there's shit that we know from being disabled that able-bodied people do not know about that and this is yes. where I'm like y'all need us because I feel sorry for you a lot of the time because we have a lot of shit we could share and we do but then there's all this like blah 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 blah, blah you're so brave shit that like stops a lot of able people from really right being, like, it becomes like an actual screen yeah no it, yeah we're, just, like, we're out here we're doing shit like you just need to pay attention and i mean i still i'm 43 but i still feel like a baby disabled person in some ways because i look at someone like leroy moore who's been doing you know as the founder of crip hop international who's a black physically disabled man doing hip-hop and spoken word and who's been doing activism on police brutality against black disabled men for like 20 or 30 years i know he's really sick of it like he's just like yeah they still don't get it and i know like he's like i've been trying to get historically black colleges and universities to bring me to campus for fucking years and wow nobody will do it right like wow you know, not like it's not like any of this shit is new like we have been here for a really long time being like okay here's the deal and I guess that's another soapbox piece I'll say is that like um my friend Dorian Taylor in Seattle did this Instagram thing last year for Black History Month where he was like I'm where they were like I'm gonna just highlight a different disabled black activist every single day because they were like, people were like, oh, this whole like diversity and disability thing is new. And they're like, no, like you can, sure Harriet Tubman, but you can go back to like, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, when she said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, she was literally disabled. You know, right. she was talking about being a disabled black woman. And, she wasn't and, joking around. No, she, it was not just a figure of speech. She was like, I'm literally talking about disability and there's like lessons and gifts for people. Okay, I could talk forever, so I'm gonna pause. Well, actually this feels like such a good segue um, because one of the things that we wanted to talk about is, um, is the, the brilliance of what disability justice 
as a lens, but also what disabled folks have to teach us about survival. Um, and, you know, obviously, like our show is all about like, um, recognizing that like we're constantly moving through apocalyptic conditions and that we and that the the very communities that we are all a part of are communities that exist because folks were fucking like resilient, brilliant badasses who like figured out a way to survive inside of like um, really, really challenging conditions. So um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what do you feel like disabled folks have to teach all of us? those who are disabled, neurodiverse, sick, abled, or as you would always say, about to realize they're disabled, <laughs> about how to survive the end of the world and like how do we bring that, how do we bring that, um, that crip approach to thinking through this idea of like being at the end of a particular way of being? Well, um, I want to start with a quote from my friend Naima Niambilo, where she once said, she's like, you know, as disabled people, we've already survived the end of the world, you know, multiple times. Um, mm -hmm. I think as disabled folks, look, we already know what it's like to be often really abandoned by our communities, you know, and movement spaces where people are just not checking for you. Um, we already know what it's like to battle systems, whether it's the medical system, um, you know, disability, the state, et cetera, for survival. Um, we know what it's like to have to battle our families to be able to like date, leave the house, like do what we want to do, have autonomy. Um, and we are really like, we're, I would say that, you know, a quality that I see in a lot of disabled communities is that we are simultaneously geniuses at figuring out how to negotiate fighting for access and fighting for care and fighting for support and building community because we know that we have needs and we know that those are just there and we might feel mixed about it but we know that we have them so um you know we figured out how to get blood out of a stone sometimes in order to build that shit and we often have had to create the care communities that we need to survive and then right. the flip side of that is that simultaneously both and we also are really we've been forced to get really good at knowing how to survive when you're literally alone and you have been abandoned and you, you know, community is not there for you. Mm. Um, I would say that that's my experience. And, you know, honestly, my brain goes to, of course, Lauren Alameda, who's disabled, right? And who I've got a yes. talking about her and, and, you know, and her hyper empathy syndrome as being what neurodiversity and fibromyalgia feel like. I'm like, oh, you're highly sensitive and you feel what everyone feels, huh? That sounds like every autistic person I've ever met. Yeah. Right, right, so, right, right. And it's a gift and it's also, there's challenges. But I mean, I think about the ways in which she built this interdependent community that left nobody behind. And that is a phrase that I've seen Sins and Ballad and other disability justice folks say a lot about, like, what does it mean to move together, not leaving anyone behind? Yeah. Um, when as yeah. disabled people, we are used to being like, you know, I'm 40 feet behind everybody else and they've forgotten that I'm there because I move more slowly. So I think about when Lauren is going to Humboldt County and she builds that network and... And just, I'm going to slow it up for a moment just so that our our, our listeners know that you're referencing um, Lauren Alamina from Parable of the Sower, which of uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, which are two of the most popular books that Octavia Butler ever wrote. Um, and if you haven't fucking read those books, just 
read them right now, but please go ahead. Totally. So real quick, and not to spoil everything, I will say that Lauren both builds this like really interdependent community that's also super real. It's not like ever magically gets along. It's like people piss each other off, they betray each other, there's romantic drama. And then she also goes through a period where that community is smashed and she has to really rebuild from a side of trauma by herself. And I was like, God, that is such... That's such a, that is literally someone who's disabled in this big apocalypse novel that a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to survive the end of the world are going to right now, who's navigating both of those spaces. Yes. So, I mean, I would say like as disabled people, um, well, you know, I mean, I think that since Trump got elected, you know, and before that, but definitely since Trump got elected, I've heard a lot of people be like, oh my God, you know, the world is ending and pretty soon everything's going to collapse, but don't worry, we'll just have community and it'll be so great. And they kind of act like community is like Superman or Superfem, like it's just going <laughs> to save the day and everything's going to be great. And, you know, I was at a community gathering where people were like, yeah, you know, like all the systems are going to break down, but like, it's cool. Like, just find your network and care for each other and like plant some seeds. And I was like, oh my God, you're all going to die. You're all going to die. Yes! Okay. <laughs> I, for me, okay, I will say like, as speaking for myself as like a, you know, cranky middle-aged sick and disabled person, oh my God, I'm like, I love you know, you. I think I, I know a lot about building community and I also know about how funky and fucked up and complicated community can be. And I'm like, look, you know, people being in interdependence, like, okay, as disabled people, as a disabled person, I have learned and been taught and taught myself so much about asking for help in a way where I still have autonomy and control. And I'm not just like, oh, thank you for this terrible liver casserole. I'm so grateful. I love that that specific example must come out of direct experience. I mean, I have never had a liver cat, but I think that that is like, you know, a lot of times I'm like, you know, I mean, something I also talk about a lot in the book that comes honestly out of my experience of a lot of suicides in my communities over the last three years is that people have this whole, just call me if you need anything, just ask for help. And I'm like, right. So as disabled people, we actually know that asking for help is incredibly complicated because most of us have been taught that asking for help means that you're weak, that you lose control, that you have to accept whatever anyone gives to you. And that within certain sick and disabled communities, we are really good and so sophisticated at being like, like I, there's like sick and disabled online communities I hang out on where people have these like rich like practices around like, okay, so I'm venting right now and this is the specific kind of support I'm asking for and I'm not open to these kinds of support. So I don't want to hear about your vitamin regimen and I don't want you to pray for me, but I am open to hearing about this specific treatment protocol, which is really revolutionary and which I think if more people were like, oh, you can ask for help like that. You just don't, you don't have to just accept everybody's bullshit. Asking for help would be a lot more... I don't have to be a blank space on which everyone's projecting their everything. Right. And being like, have you tried acupuncture a million times? And I'm like, I love acupuncture, but shut the fuck up. Yeah, please. One more person suggests that to me. I will poke them. (laughs) What I would say is like, I think that we know about... We have some skills about like knowing how to both give and receive help and to really practice our yes and our no. And I think we also know that often we are operating in less than ideal conditions. And what I mean by that is that like, you know, I wanted to say to those people who are like, oh yeah, interdependence, yeah, community. I was like, so what it really is, is that sometimes um, you're trying to help somebody who's actually a real asshole, you know, like they're really cranky and they're really in a bad mood and they're driving you nuts, but like they literally need the care that they need, you know, how do you negotiate that, right? Um, Um, You know, like how do you negotiate care when so much of the time 
you know, when you're sick or disabled, you may have very little community because you're isolated. You know, you may not have a lot of social points or a lot of social currency. So how do you navigate that? How do you navigate it when everybody's having a nervous breakdown at the same time? You know, right. for starters, which happens right. a lot. And I think <laughs> a lot of people post-Trump, they're like, I, have, I mean, I know some people were like, all my friends have been having a mental health crisis for two years. Oh, so. yeah. Right. So oh, like, yeah. that's not like we can't do it, but that is the question of like, so it means that we have to get real about that instead of just being like, everything's wonderful. And we also have to be like, okay, so the curiosity I bring is like, so maybe I can't run in and save the day and be like a never end, like a mommy with no off switch who's just always giving to everybody. Maybe my capacity is really limited, um, but I can still talk to you for 10 minutes and you can talk to me for 10 minutes, which is really different than the model, the all or nothing model people have around care, which I think is rooted in yes. gendered expectations around motherhood, around so much stuff. Um, and around this idea that disabled people can't do anything, we're just these passive recipients. Um, you know, yeah. that either you can do everything or it's like, hope you feel better and you can be back on track soon. There's a lot more that's available when everyone can do their 10 minutes or everyone is like, I can't do everything, but this is the thing I can do. Right. When folks are really like in congruence with what their boundaries actually are and what their offerings are. Right. So that's some of what I think we have to offer in terms of really building interdependence. I think a lot of disabled people would also say, I think we would push back. So in some social justice communities, I'm sure you've seen this, people were like, well, the hospitals will fall apart, but we'll just use herbs. And like a lot of disabled people I know were like, no, dude, I actually need some sophisticated medical equipment and like made in a factory and like an MRI and like, yeah, the herbs and like the Reiki and all the shit too, but we need both and. Right. And I think that right. realism around that, I think it's very helpful because it reminds me of like, you know, I was like, man, like, I am anarchist identified, but you know, in some of the many, you know, what will we do after the end of the world conversations I've had over the years, I'm like, fuck man, if the world ended tomorrow, no one would know how to fix the sewers. They'd all be like, but you know, I can like. I can poop in a hole for days and then bury that poop and then dig a new hole. It's like, well, what are you gonna do when the ground's frozen, bitch? I, I feel like, I do feel like there's this interesting thing in what you're pointing to, which is that like, there's that there is an enormous level of entitlement and privilege that comes with the notion that the world might fall apart, but we can figure out a way to be safe and not thinking about because to me, what you're presenting is like we actually have a different set of things we have to consider and take care of, which is are we prepared to manage the infrastructure that would actually keep everyone alive? Right. That question. And that leads to what I was going to say, too, which is that um and it, it kind of, and it, it's a nice segue into, I want to give some examples of how I see disabled folks doing really amazing climate crisis work right now. Ooh, um, what yes. I was going to say is like, as disabled people, we actually, we have skills, you know, we have a lot of skills and some of the skills we have are that surviving the end of the world that Naima talked about in that quote I said at the beginning of this, you know, we actually have been prepping for the apocalypse for a while. So what that means is that when we're doing, when people start talking about the like, okay, you know, get your go bag ready and stuff, like, you know, for us, we're like, yeah, so that needs to include a generator so that my friend can charge her batteries for her ventilator so she doesn't die, for example. And, um, you know, that reminds me, I mean, after Fukushima, this is like, 10, you know, almost 10 years ago, I was in the Bay and, you know, I was really, like a lot of people on the West Coast, I was like, oh my God, is this radiation going to hit us? Like, this is so, oh, this yeah. is so overwhelming, right? And, 
you know, and I, and we had a couple meetings of like this like disability justice apocalypse prep, you know, group of friends where we were just like, okay, so if this shit hit the fan, like what would we do? And one person who was there, who's a ventilator user and a power tree user, very matter of factly was like, for years, I have just assumed that if some major crisis happens, I will be dead in 48 hours because I need to charge my shit. And if everyone's just running for the hills on bicycles, I am not going to be able to make it. And so we started having conversations about, okay, so what can we actually do to shift that? Does somebody have a generator? Does somebody have solar power that's off-grid that we could charge your stuff on? Yeah. And then fast forward to like three or four years later, Hurricane Sandy hits. And a friend of mine, you know, a group of disabled friends I have in New York were doing this action. I mean, they weren't doing an action, but they were basically helping do access support for a friend who was on like the 12th floor of a building, is a ventilator user. And they were like, yeah, we were walking up and down 12 flights of stairs in the dark, carrying his spare batteries to the firehouse two blocks down the road to charge them every six hours so he could stay alive. Wow. Right? So we have stories of that that are resources and i want those i don't know about scale but i want people to know about those stories when they're and to think about them and to really sit down and be like you know like a piece of homework i might give people is like sit down think about the people in your communities ask them what their access needs are think about what your own access needs are if whatever cataclysmic event happen that you're imagining in the back of your heads what would you specifically need like let's actually plan for it and not be surprised yeah. by it and yeah. if we're actually bringing access and disability into our day-to-day -day lives pre that apocalypse, that actually will help because we'll already have those tools. And, right. right. And then what I, something I want to talk about um, is that, so we've had these wildfires, um, these climate change fueled wildfires on the West Coast of the past two years in a really intense way. And, um, you know, I mean, and it's, you know, it's so funky because like, it's so, it quickly becomes the new normal, right? You know, we're like, last year, I was like, oh my God, there's like black shit raining down from the sky at nine in the morning and the sun's bright red. What? The, and it's Seattle, so we only have three good months of weather a year. So <laughs> right. really try and pack it in. Like, yeah, Lindy West wrote about this, where she's like, August is really, we have two months of being LA and 10 months of gloom. And <laughs> the wildfires just took a one it's of our fucking months. up our two months of LA. <laughs> They're fucking up our two months of where we can get any vitamin D whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, so there's all, basically there's all of this particulate matter. There's all of this like burnt trees, but also, you know, exploded cars, like, you know, all the shit that burns and puts petrochemicals into the air. And then I saw all these people online being like, oh my God, I'm feeling kind of sick. Is anyone else feeling that way? Am I crazy? And then what on a, a micro, right. And then, but you know, that's so common. And then there were all the, like the folks who were the first responders in community were mostly, you know, disabled and chronically ill folks who already were dealing with multiple chemical sensitivity or injury or other things where they were like, so yeah, this is called a mask and this is called an air purifier and these are called herbs. <laughs> and this is what we've been using for the past 10 years to just deal with your perfume, but they will work for this too. Right. Right. <laughs> so like, I saw that happening and I saw like a lot of generosity where people were like, I already have spare masks in my house. Like, here you go. I know where to get them. Here's how you, you can get a HEPA air purifier, but you can also, if you can't afford that, you can get a furnace air filter and put it on a box fan and it's 30 bucks and it'll take care of a lot of this stuff. And then I saw that scaling up where in 2017, Lightning Bolt, which is a disability justice led group in the Bay Area um, that formed after Trump to be like, okay, how do we do like community safety stuff without the police? How do we do like right. access right. stuff without systems? 
they had this thing called ask the people where you know in the in the bay as in so many communities right now there's huge houseless communities of people who can't right. afford anymore right. and you know, smoke is bad when you're in a house with walls. If you're in a tent, it's really fucking bad. Like you don't have any protection. So they crowdsourced money and they were going out to different street communities and being like, here you go. Like, let's make sure that we get through this together. And it was disabled people who led that. Yes. And then this year, um, Mask Oakland came together and was co-led by folks in the disability community. And it formed really just completely grassroots DIY, just emergency response style when the campfire happened. Um, out in Chico in Paradise, and they gave out, I think the last count, they gave out like 80,000 masks. Like they, wow. Yeah, and, it, and it's okay. So, and this is the thing is that like <laughs> I was posting about it, and like, and these are like more organized collective things. And then I see so many disabled herbalists and healers giving advice about here's how you detox, here's how you deal with if you're feeling panicky, it's because you're getting less oxygen, here's how you deal with it, and sharing that knowledge, right? Um, to everybody. And then you see this like group of this, you know, sick and disabled folks who are like, we're going to scale this up and we're going to get like 80,000 masks and like give them out to like houseless people, people in general. They drove out to Chico and Paradise to give them to folks. And then I remember posting about it and like somebody I know on Facebook was like, well, it's a real shame that they have, they're having to do it. I mean, the state should be doing it. And I was like, right, but here's the thing, like maybe it'll change in the future. But so as someone who lives in the West Coast and who's rooted in Oakland and Seattle, for the past two years that we've had wildfire, um, what we're now calling air emergencies, right? Speaking of apocalypse, there's been like, yeah. Nazi language. <laughs> like, I grew up watching sci-fi where everyone's breathing through masks and now here we are. And the thing is actually, one cryptologist, your mask can be cute. You know, I know a lot of sick people who are like, I've really blinged out my mask over the years because like, it doesn't have to be an awful thing. Yes, it is fucked up, the air is fucked up. And also we can survive this together and you know, but that's not what I was going to say, that that is important. What I was going to say is that I'm like, you know, so far I have not, like I was in Seattle this year and I was like, yeah, is the mayor, I'm like, I think of Nikita Oliver had won, you know, the black queer revolutionary mayoral candidate who almost won. She'd be mm -hmm. giving out masks maybe. Um, our current mayor is not, I mean, the most they're doing is like go to the library if you're sick, but they're not treating it as a public health emergency. Right, right. That, you know, the city of Seattle could use some of its money, its Amazon money to give people respiratory <laughs> Right. You know, and same in Oakland, you know, with whoever the fuck her name is, who's the mayor. And I'm just like, so this is an example of how, you know, so much of disability justice is, is from the beginning. Our work has been saying that the state is not going to save us. It's designed to kill us. A lot of us are trying to make the state work because we have to, and that's fine, but the state's not the solution. We're the solution. And I would say that like those two groups in short are examples of people with disabled knowledge who are using it to save everybody. Cause they already were like, yeah, here's all the, like people with three yeah. already were like, okay, there's the N95 mask and then the P95 mask actually filter out petroleum. So if you have a bunch of farmland on fire and farm chemicals exploding, you need a P95 because the N95 is better than that thing if you have a handkerchief that's really not going to do shit um yeah wow and it's also us knowing how to organize outside of systems to like deliver the goods to people right right so which we know the state doesn't know how to do right and so i want people to support that i want people to know that when they support it that's coming from disabled knowledge beautiful i'm so i um you know we have to close because I have to go get my kids from school, but, um, <laughs> which is, yeah, well, my hilarious 
you know, all the limitations of life. But I love you so much. And I'm really glad that you gave those like such specific, concrete, timely examples of like, here's what this actually looks like in practice. Because I think that um, I think it's so important always for us to be able to land in the place of like, this is actually already happening, right? Like both the climate apocalypse that is unfolding is already happening. It's already here. It's not happening like halfway across the world. It's happening here. And also the solutions from inside the apocalypse are already there, right? That like we're already figuring out how we're surviving. And those who have been most impacted by, I mean, this is what we always talk about, right? That like those who are most impacted by the conditions sustained over time are best positioned to teach us what to do right now. Like already have the information. (laughs) So I just, I'm really appreciative of you like landing us with those examples of like, the concrete work that folks are already doing, all the brilliance that folks are already bringing and that so much of, you know, what I'm hearing and what you're sharing is that so much of what disabled and sick folks are really inviting from abled folks is like, turn your gaze, like turn your gaze and notice what's actually already happening around you. And like so much of it is about shifting your attention and actually being willing to expose yourself to the brilliance that's already unfolding all around you that's coming from folks who are sick and disabled. Totes. You have offered so much to both like the community of artists that you touch, but also to the social movement that you touch and to all of us, like your life has been a gift, is a gift and your work is a gift to all of us. And I just want you to know, like, I'm so honored to have had this conversation with you and so grateful for the way that you've influenced my work. And I fucking love you. Thank you so much for all that nice shit. That was Leah's brilliance. And for more on her work, you can go to brownstargirl.org. You can buy the book Care Work, which is available wherever books are sold. And then you can also look out this fall. Leah has co-edited a book um, with Jiris Dixon called This Is How We Survive, a Transformative Justice Reader. And it's sure to be a a helpful guidebook for anyone who's really trying to get into the practice with that work. Um, So those are some of the ways you can follow up. Thank you for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Into the World PC. We're also on Facebook at Into the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash Into the World Show. Another helpful thing you can do is write a review anywhere that you listen to your podcast. Go write a review and tell people, hey, this is a good one. Um, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the dependable and upstanding Zach Rosen. And music for today's show comes from Tunde Alanaran and Mother Cyborg. Love y'all.